0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. I would like to uh, begin our message this morning with uh, you putting all thoughts aside and going with me on a little imaginary trip, uh, if you would. And so I'm thinking that likely it might be a place that I take you to in your imagination that's not got too many reference points, and that's my design. That's why I chose this place to go to in our imagination and not anywhere else. Let me take you in your imagination to the city of Potosí, Bolivia where you will be finding yourself at at an altitude of over 13,000 feet above sea level where half the population of the city works in the mines and some as young as age 12 will be working in the mines and uh, spend their entire lives doing so. Looming over the city of Potosí in the shadow is the city, but looming over it is the enormous mountain called Cerro Rico, which means Rich Hill. And in Cerro Rico is um, thousands of mines and shafts. There are over there are 650 entrances to the mountain itself, and all the cooperative mines inside the mountain offer rich deposits of silver, lead, copper and zinc that await the 15,000 miners that work the mountain, Cerro Rico. They descend five days a week or six days a week, they descend almost two miles beneath the earth's surface and they work 10-hour shifts in 45 degrees of steamy heat The Spanish founded the city of Potosí in 1545 and they exploited the Inca peoples to work in the mines. Many of them died young. Many of the people still die young. The average age of the miners in Potosí is under the age of 40. And in order to survive these long shifts of difficult circumstance beneath the Earth's surface, there are are various deeply held beliefs and superstitions and practices that the miners observe. First of all, for example, women are not allowed in the mines. It's considered bad luck. Secondly, before a miner goes down for a shift, there is a a routine of equipment checks that happens, and so there's things like fresh batteries for the headlamps, explosives, and so on. But in addition to that, there's some things you might think odd. One of them is, of course, the coca leaves that they stuff their cheeks with. It fights off the hunger pains during the long shift. It also fights altitude sickness. Then there is the cigarettes and the uh, strong local alcoholic drink. But not all the alcohol is drunk during the the shift, the 10 to 12-hour shifts. Actually, a lot of it is poured out right at the entrance of the of the cave or the mine shaft because at every entrance, all 650, at every entrance there is an effigy of the Virgin Mary and there is a tío, which is uncle in Spanish and it's it's a replica, a statue of the devil and at every entrance and upon every entrance and shift every miner is compelled because of their beliefs and superstitions to offer a sacrifice, an offering to the Virgin Mary and to the teal. You see, the belief is that when you're entering the steamy bowels of the earth to extract something precious like silver or zinc or or lead or copper, then you better make sure you're ready to appease the one that is its domain you're taking from. And the belief is that when you're above the earth, that's God's domain, however you understand them. But when you enter beneath the earth... That's the devil's domain. And if you're going to take something from his domain, you better appease him regularly. And so they offer what is called a chaya. And this offering is a a giving of of, uh, whatever things they have to the tio or to the pachamama, the mother earth, alcohol, cigarettes, coca leaves, trinkets. But besides these daily, daily routine practices that they offer, Rituals. There are also seasonal rituals depending on the time of the year. And so they will sacrifice a, a llama. They'll slit the animal's throat. The blood will, will bleed out and they'll drink some of it and pour some of it on the ground. And These are regular things that happen among this people. Well, perhaps by now you're wondering, well, why is it that we're going into such detail to talk about a people halfway around the world where we have no reference point for and the reason I'm doing it is because of exactly that it's people halfway around the world that you have no reference point for, and the reason I share about it is because it's exactly that kind of people that we need to think about when we enter the world of Joshua and so when we think about what is it that is their worldview, how are the reasons what are the reasons underneath their beliefs and rituals how how do we go about bridging cultures and hemispheres in order to somehow Uh, look at what separates us and how to link us with them. That's the challenge that we face when we open many of the pages of the Old Testament. We We are forced to enter a world, but we're not just crossing cultures and hemispheres, we're crossing generations ago. And we're crossing into a people that are not today observable like the people of Potosí, Bolivia. You could go to Potosí, Bolivia, you can see them, you can even get a tour of the mine for a price. But you cannot go and see the Hebrew people, the way they functioned in the time of Joshua. And so, if we have trouble understanding Israel and the message of Joshua, and how God dealt with people in ancient times, we should not be surprised. And my appeal to us would be to have patience as we read the Scriptures, to be slow in passing judgment on God, or on the way God deals with His people in times past, based on our own paradigms that come from our own culture, and to take the time to get behind and underneath, why is it that they thought that way? Why is it that they behaved that way? What is it that is about this people that we need to understand? Just as though you would also take the time to get underneath and behind the new neighbor that moves onto your street that's from another religious background and another culture, hopefully you will take the time as well to not quickly pass judgment on the people of Joshua and to think that you can understand them fully without some deep understanding, deep uh, study and thinking through. And then when you've done that, to ponder what it means to bridge the hemispheres, the cultures, the languages, and all that, to come to today and say, what are you saying to me, God, in this chapter of the Bible? You see, if you believe along with with, uh, Christians that believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and training and correcting and training in righteousness so that we can be equipped, if you believe that all Scripture is useful, the, the question that really kind of comes at us is when we open up some of these pages in Joshua, God, what is useful here for me in this dividing up of the inheritance of each tribe of Israel? And so that is indeed the the challenge that we face because we do come up against today in our passage some concepts that have no reference point in Canada in the 21st century. So how is it that we look at the reference points or look at the, the customs and rituals and then take something that is for us. That's the challenge that we face today. And uh, would you turn your Bibles now and turn to Joshua chapter 21. And in Joshua chapter 21, we're going to read just a few verses at the end of the chapter. Verses 43 to 45. And I'm going to ask if you would stand with, with me and we'll listen to God's word together. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 21 beginning with verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land He had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's great good promises to the house of Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. May God bless His Word. You may be seated. Now, I read that because it comes at the end of about five or six chapters of uh, material that we would look at and perhaps get lost in upon first reading. I read that as a summary of all that God did, and so now we're going to go back to chapter 15, and we're going to start to look at what it is that God did. And as a preface, you'll notice in your insert in your bulletin to the introduction that really the distribution of the land of Israel to the tribes reflect really the mercy and grace of God that the church of Jesus Christ is to reflect and to incarnate into this generation. That's what I want to argue this morning as we look at some of these foreign concepts. And so let's begin by thinking about the division of the land. And to do so, you'll, you'll see in chapters 15 to 19, there are all kinds of boundary lines and and geographical markers that are described as the, the land is divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. When we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, we are talking about the 12 sons of Jacob. And so we see them listed in Genesis chapter 49, just before Jacob dies. We read that he he blesses each of his sons. And one by one, from the eldest to the youngest, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali... Joseph and Benjamin appear before him, and he blesses them. And, and actually, it's not just a blessing. In fact, sometimes it's a bit of a cursing, but it's a prophesying over him, that child. And then what we see in Joshua is that kind of a fulfillment of that prophecy based on the inheritance they receive as the tribe that bears that son's name. And so we look at these 12 tribes, and just as a aside, uh, there are... Uh, There is one tribe, Levi, of course, we'll talk about in a moment, that is the priestly tribe. They receive no allotment of land, and yet there are 12 portions of land that are distributed and divvied up. And and how did we come up with 12, and uh, in spite of the fact that Levi doesn't get any, the reason is because Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they both get a portion of of the land, and so there are 12 portions of land. But the Levites are spread throughout all the land in 48 different cities. We'll talk about that uh, in our in our another point. And we don't have time to get into too much detail, but um, I do want to take a moment to explain why is it that the first and eldest son doesn't get the first portion of land. Reuben is the eldest, and according to Hebrew practice, it was the eldest son that should get the first inheritance. And in in a quick summary form, if you looked at Genesis 35, you'd see that the reason Reuben doesn't get chosen first is because he he forfeited his right because he slept with Jacob, his father's concubine, and, and, and forfeited the right to that, and he sinned against Israel. Um, another, the next two sons, Simeon and Levi, also forfeit their right, and you can read about it in Genesis chapter 34 where uh, Dinah is one of their sisters, and a Hivite man comes along and violates their sister, and in revenge, they convince all the Hivite men that if they're going to have Israelite wives, they have to be circumcised. So the entire town of men is circumcised, and then Levi and Simeon put on their swords and they go in the next day and they kill them all. All the men are slaughtered. Jacob is upset. God is disturbed. They lose their, they forfeit their, their right in this way. And yet Levi, the priestly tribe, gets, gets the blessing back. And the reason is because in Exodus chapter 32, we see that during that golden calf incident, we see the Levites zealous for the holiness of God, and they are restored in that way. Now, I know I'm running really fast here. But I'm trying to just kind of give you a, an understanding of why some of this order takes place the way it does. So let's take a look at chapter 15 now. And you'll notice in chapter 15 at the beginning that the first allotment goes to the tribe of Judah. They're the fourth in line, as I said. And the word allotment is actually very, uh, very wisely chosen because it's, it's based on the casting of lots. It's based on this, this ancient practice, not just among Hebrew, but other peoples where there was, to the best of our understanding, one or two containers, and there were certain stones put in the containers, and the faces of the stones had marks on them, either paint or something, and then the, the containers were shaken, poured out on a lap or on the ground, and then the stones would decide then who was the tribe next to be chosen or in what order they were chosen Now, when we read about the casting of lots and the allotment of land in the Scriptures, there is nothing at all that suggests things like fate or fortune or luck, like we would often think of, well, roll the dice and see if you're lucky today. There's nothing like that. In fact, the scriptural understanding of, of casting of lots is that the sovereign Lord will determine this, and He'll give the outcome based on His decision and people will receive it without blaming anybody in leadership for showing some kind of partiality. In fact, if you take a look at at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says, "...the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord." And so the Hebrew people clearly understood that this practice was overwrought by the, the sovereign hand of God. As an aside, I want to say as well, that the last time we see, all, in all of Scripture, the last time we see the casting of lots is in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples, the apostles, are choosing someone to replace Judas, who has died. And they, they cast lots, and the lot falls to Matthias, and he is made the twelfth apostle. And then what happens in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. And from that point on, we don't read anything in Scripture about the casting of lots. Why is that? Because, you see, we no longer depend on these devices for God to ordain and set apart leaders and make major decisions. We have within us and within our midst the Holy Spirit of God. And He guides us through Scripture and through prayer and through discernment. He guides us as the people of God. It's an incredibly important uh, lesson to remember as we think about how do we discern God's leading and God's will. So Joshua chapter 15, we see that the tribe of Judah is the first to receive their inheritance. You can read in that chapter all the details that they made about the boundaries of the land, that parcel. You can look in the back of your yellow insert. There's a map there. There's a better map in the webpage that shows not only this, but the cities of refuge as well as the towns of the Levites and so on. Then you'll see in chapter 16 and 17, the two sons of Joseph received their allotment of land, Ephraim and Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh. In chapter 18, we then read about this coming together of all the tribes at Shiloh, where where Joshua says, how long will you wait before you'll take the land that God has given you? Because seven tribes so far had not even attempted to go in to take their land. And so Joshua then sends out a survey team that goes into that land, and they apportion seven tribes plots of land. The, the team comes back. I mean, we're reading in this chapter a survey of uh, a quick synopsis, but obviously it took some time. The survey team comes back and, and shows the map of the seven allo- allotted portions, and then they draw a lot again. They, they cast lots, and the first lot falls to Benjamin, then Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. You can read all about that in chapters 18 and 19. So by the t- end of chapter 19, all of the inheritance is divided up. All the land is ready, and, uh, and then the, the tribes are responsible to go in and take the land. Now what I find, find particularly noteworthy, and if you have your Bibles open, I, I'd encourage you to read with me, is that in every one of the cases of the 12 tribes, not one tribe received their full inheritance. Every one of the tribes somehow compromised or did not enter into all that God had for them. We'll start with chapter 13. In chapter 13, we're talking about the two and a half tribes that settled on the east side of the Jordan. And what does it say? It says this in verse 13 of chapter 13. But the Israelites did not drive out the people of Geshur and Makkah, so they continue to live among the Israelites to this day. So they just made peace with their enemies somehow, and they cohabitated on the land, even though if we look later on in the book of Judges, you will find that having made peace with the enemy, later on it comes back to bite them. And these two and a half tribes are the first ones to be attacked in the book of Judges. Then we go on to chapter 15, and we're looking here at the tribe of Judah. Look at verse 63. It says, Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. They were unable to dislodge them. They, they just made peace with them. Chapter 16, verse 10, talking about the Ephraimites. They did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. So they made this pact where they said, okay, we're not going to kill you, but you're going to work for us. And again, that slave people rise up against Israel later on in the history. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 12, it says, Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And we could go on, but if you wanted to really see a summary of it, Take a look at Judges chapter 1. It goes through all the tribes and it shows how every tribe does not fully possess their possessions, what God had promised their father Abraham for them. Now for me, the take-home lesson from this, the clearest application for us today is that even as our banner says at the front from Ephesians 1.3 that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The fact is that we're not living to the fullest capacity of what God has given us in Christ. That's the lesson that we receive. In other words, that We're not fully enjoying the security of being loved with an everlasting and unconditional love. We're not fully established in His mercy and grace so much that we are reflecting and passing that grace on to others as servants of Christ Jesus. We don't fully have the capacity when we pray to see the power of God come down and we see answered prayer in an incredible way. We do not fully uh, experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit through our lives and service in the way that we believe God has available for us. you could point to any area of the christian life living and you could say i'm not fully walking on and possessing the inheritance that i have in jesus christ that's the lesson of that now you might say that's very discouraging but i don't find it discouraging to read about the 12 tribes and their inability to possess fully what god had given them i find it encouraging Because I know that as long as we live on this earth, we're going to reflect the 12 tribes to some degree. Some of us that may grow stronger in faith and in in, in hope in God will be like the Calebs who can take the giants on and dispossess them, but not fully take all the land, even in Calebs' situation. But the fact is that as long as you live in this body, as long as you live on this earth, there will be more growth needed in your life to fully experience all that Jesus has for you. And so the prayer that we want to pray is, God, increase my capacity for love, for service, for grace. Increase my capacity, like the Jabez prayer. And that's why when we go to Ephesians this winter and we open up the the pages of Paul in Ephesians, twice in Ephesians, Paul just drifts into prayer and if you read the prayer requests of Paul, they're not for, for Aunt Sally and, and somebody else's you know, sickness. They're, they're, they're all these incredibly capacity prayers that you might grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. And that you might know this love that surpasses knowledge, by the way. I mean, he's going on to these capacity praying that we're going to look at this winter Because that's how we ought to pray for each other and for ourselves. God, there's so much more for us. I want to walk in that. I want to experience that, Lord. Increase my capacity. Let's move on to the second point. The second concept that's found in the Scripture is foreign to us. We don't have a reference point for it. When the Bible talks in chapter 20 of, of of this passage about the cities of refuge... We need to go back and we need to understand that cities of refuge were needed in the time of Joshua because of the common beliefs and practices of the land. We've talked about this before. We've talked about blood retribution. That it was the responsibility, not the right. It was the responsibility of the next of kin, of someone who was murdered, for you to go, therefore, and seek justice and murder in return. That was the way the cultures functioned. It was this retribution policy. And then so in order to keep balance, in order that, that uh, the innocent would not die because of a family that is seeking vengeance, God created cities of refuge. And he says that there were to be six of them spread out through the east and the west side of the Jordan River. If you look at Numbers chapter 35, we see this. In verse 9, it says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, select some towns to be your cities of refuge, to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. They will be places of refuge from the avenger, so that a person accused of murder may not die before he stands trial before the assembly. And he goes on to tell about where they should be located and so on. And so in Joshua chapter 20, we see the fulfillment of that that we read in Numbers 35. Three on the east side, three on the west side. The, The law of Moses stated that the roads to these cities of refuge had to be very clearly maintained. Signage had to be along the roads so that anybody fleeing from an avenger could be able to find the city of refuge and get inside the gate safely. Because if you were one meter outside of the gate, you were slaughtered, and no law would would attack the the avenger. And if you were inside the gate, that people were going to protect you until you stood trial. What a foreign concept for us to understand. But you can imagine in that culture, two men working alone somewhere. An axe head flies off of a handle and lodges in someone's head. He bleeds to death. Rather than running to the family to offer condolences, you run to the city of refuge because you could be accused of murder and they would be absolutely justified in in killing you. There are two ways that this concept maybe could be understood. And I wanted to start by saying that if we really get underneath and behind the city of refuge, what we see is the justice of God and the mercy of God, don't we? I mean, the cities of refuge were created so that justice could be pursued. Someone that is innocent should not be slaughtered. And someone who is guilty should not be sheltered. They need to stand trial. But it's also the mercy of God seen because there is a need for a shelter place. It's interesting. I think that when the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament starts penning the the chapter 6, I think he might be thinking of the cities of refuge when he says in chapter 6, verse 18, We are those who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us, he says. And he goes on to talk about Christ who is found behind the curtain, who has gone before us and has secured a place for us. We are the ones who have fled to take hold of Jesus. Jesus is our city of refuge. The difference is that that the cities of refuge in in Israel were only for the innocent. But in Jesus Christ, we find a city of refuge for the guilty, sinners, guilty like we are. We can run to Him, and we can find refuge from the wrath of God against sin. Confess your sins, and you can be saved. You can be sheltered from the wrath of God. But another way of looking at the cities of refuge would be to think about the church as a city of refuge in our society. And again, if we think about that, the mercy and the justice of God should be what we're all about. We really should be. We should be thinking about how it is that our church is a shelter, a safe place. You know, I could... I could I've met people over the years that that would tell you that the church is the last place that they would consider safe. We have not done well, church. We've not done well at communicating that we love sinners and we hate sin. We've not done well at that. The message is conveyed so obscurely that people who are caught in various sins in this world get the message that you're not welcome here. We don't like your type. It's not right. It's not reflecting God in His justice and in His mercy that receives sinners. One of the commentaries that I read, Robert Hubbard, talks about a safe church. He says four things First of all, he says it's primarily concerned about today and tomorrow, not yesterday. We too often, we evaluate people on their yesterdays. I'm glad that God doesn't evaluate me on my yesterdays. Secondly, he says it's a place where mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment. Thank the Lord it did in our case, as those who know Jesus Christ. Mercy triumphed over judgment. Thirdly, he says, it grows members who are aware of their own warts, not just those of others. I like that one. It grows members that are aware of their own warts. If Jesus were to stand among us and to say, He who is without sin cast the first stone, would any of us have the boldness to stand up? I hope not. We all are more alike than we are different. And fourthly, he says it gives people the God treatment. I like that language. It gives people the God treatment. What is the God treatment? It means you treat people the same way God has treated you. I mean, that just, that just disarms all of us. How merciful God has been to us. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. And so this this concept of the cities of refuge is an important one that we need to think through. How do we become a safe place as a church? The third concept, also rather foreign, is this town of the Levites that we looked at. In chapter 21 it's talked about. And in chapter 21 it talks about the 48 different towns that are to be divided up to be the towns of the Levites, this priestly tribe that rather than being given a portion of their own land, are given 48 towns with pasture lands around the towns, uh, a more clear binder, or a new, more clear map is found in the binder or on the webpage if you want to look at it, and so whereas the cities of refuge are kind of like the gathered church, the gathered church should be a safe place for others to come to who are God-seekers who are messed up with all kinds of foreign ideas about God and about morality. The church should be a safe place. Cities of Refuge is a picture of the church as a gathered community. But the towns of the Levites should be the scattered church. You See, that's the picture of us midweek, when we're all divided up in our neighborhoods and communities where we live. And there we are planted by God to be His priestly presence in this world. You are a priest of God. You see a priest's function, the levite function was to represent God to Israel and Israel to God. And so what happens between times in the three seasons of the year when the Israelite was to go up to Shiloh or later Jerusalem, in between those three festivals, what happened if you had a question about the law of Moses? What happened if you had a prayer request and you wanted a priest to pray for you and intercede on your behalf what happened if you had all kinds of questions or dilemmas you needed to con- consult with, uh, have counsel on well what you would do is you'd go to the nearest town of the Levite and there you would go and you would pursue and find him, he would, he would have a meeting with a priest and there you could ask what does the law of Moses say And would you pray for me and would you pray for my family and that's what happened and I think that's what God says we're supposed to be we're supposed to be spread out like salt throughout the society and all the neighborhoods, and we're supposed to be priestly in that way. One author that I read said that the church should be like God's visitor information center. God's in, God's visitor information. You know, think about it for a moment. How, how messed up some people's image and conception of God is. I mean, if, if someone has is, is got a stirring in their heart and they, they go through a crisis or something and they want to know God, they want to pray, they want to get to know the spiritual side, they're going to get lost. They're going to Google something and they're going to get millions of pieces of advice. Or, or they're going to go to the the directory and find all kinds of screwed up, messed up, wrong views on what god's all about but you see god's priests are spread throughout the neighborhoods you and i we're in relationship like brad said in earlier in his announcement he talked about who's on your main street bring them to the bethlehem live but that's the point is that hopefully they won't turn to the google or to something else they'll turn to you they'll turn to someone who seems to be walking this god thing out And maybe they'll get some of their questions answered. You know, I've seen it where people who had nothing to do with God didn't want to talk about God. All of a sudden, they go through a crisis. And you say, can I pray for you? And they're just desperate, saying, yes, please pray for me. And all of a sudden, the door to learn about God is open. You know, we don't talk enough, friends, about our faith, about Jesus. There's so many places where people are going to get the wrong answers. I just was driving down Waverly the other day, and there's this huge billboard telling you that the Quran is where the answers are going to be found. There's many places that people are going to turn to. And and God says, no, you're you're my priests. You're my people. I spread you out so that you can speak on my behalf and so that you can bring the needs of this society to me. What does it say in 1 Peter 2, verse 9? He says, You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God. Why are you this people? Why? And he says at the last half of the verse so that you can declare. You can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. How much have you been declaring lately about God? Just. Your own own darkness to light story. How much have you declared to the people on your main street? I challenge you this Christmas, you've got so many opportunities that are coming up. I challenge you, invite some family over for dinner. And just say simply, is there anything we can pray for you about during Christmas now? See what happens. Talk to somebody and take them out for coffee or Or at work or at school or something. Just do something that's going to step out and and see if God isn't going to cause something there that's going to thrust you into this wonderful priestly role that God intends you to be. And all of a sudden, you're God's visitor information center and you're correcting wrong rumors about God. You see, He's a God of justice and mercy. And that's key. A lot of people don't see Him that way. Would you stand with me as we conclude? And uh, let's ask God to seal in our minds and hearts whatever this message was meant to be for you as the Holy Spirit applies it. And let me just read a poem to you as I begin my prayer. It's an anonymous poem. It says, If this is not a place where tears are understood where do I go to cry? If this is not a place where my questions can be asked, where do I go to seek? If this is not a place where my feelings can be heard, where do I go to speak? If this is not a place where you'll accept me as I am, where do I go to be? If this is not a place where I can try to learn and grow, where can I just be me? If this is not a place where tears are understood, then, where do I go to cry? Well, Father, our God, we, we come to you this, this morning, and we just acknowledge, Lord, that we have not done well at possessing all that you've given us, at living to our capacity in Jesus Christ, and we thank you that your grace is abundant and fills up all that we're lacking. We also want to thank you, God, that that you're so gracious and and patient with us because we haven't done well at making our homes or our lives or our church family a welcome and safe refuge for sinners. That we send a mixed signal sometimes and people don't really get to know the God of mercy and justice. But please help us, O Lord, to be accessible enough so that we can know the ones you call to us. And Father, as you spread us out during the week in all of our neighborhoods and workplaces and schools, even this week, Lord, we count on you to show us who it is that you want us to minister to. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond, to just offer a word of encouragement, a prayer. And Lord, may you send us the ones that are are seeking you. So, Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we thank you for this service of worship, and we now ask you to dismiss us, that may the, the love of God our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. People of God, go in his peace.